And now please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ezra and chapter 3. The book of Ezra, chapter 3, commencing to read at verse 6 and reading through verse 13. Book of Ezra, chapter 3, beginning to read at verse 6 and reading through verse 13. Again, please give your careful attention. This is God's Word. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For He is good, and His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men, who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joy, joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. 
And the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Amen. And thus far the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible Word. Jeshua and his fellow priests, together with Zerubbabel and his associates, had rebuilt the altar of burnt offering that stood next to where the temple had been in Jerusalem. They had done this in time to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. That's in the seventh month of the ancient Jewish calendar, as we read in the first part of Ezra chapter 3 in verses 1 through 6. The exiles then most likely had barely unpacked their belongings, as we might say, before they found themselves camping in tents underneath these shelters of leaves in the open air for the weekly, uh, the week-long festival of tabernacles or sometimes called Feast of Booths because of where they dwelt for this week. Returning to Jerusalem after life in Babylon therefore reminded them that their lives were fragile and transient. Like their forefathers in the wilderness, the only reason that ultimately they came to the land of Canaan and to the city of Jerusalem was because of the Lord's intervention and the Lord delivering them and bringing them to this place. And so, in recognition of that, forgoing the benefits of what we might say was a comfortable bed at night, and forgoing the benefits of a solid roof over their head at night, these returning exiles stopped everything as the Lord had commanded during tabernacles in order to acknowledge the hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord in deliverance, the hand of the Lord in preservation, and the hand of the Lord in bringing them as He had promised to this place in the first place after the exodus and now returning them to this place after the exile. To acknowledge the hand of God in sustaining them in what was otherwise their human, fragile existence. And so, as we come to this final section of Ezra chapter 3 from verse 6b, the second part of verse 6, to the end of the chapter, we find that having rebuilt the altar of the burnt offering, Jeshua and his fellow priests, together with Zerubbabel and his associates, turn to the reconstruction of the temple. We're going to think about four things here as we conclude this chapter. First of all, temple reconstruction. Secondly, a demanding work. Thirdly, a praised work. And fourthly, a discouraging work. So first of all then, temple reconstruction. 
verses 6b through 8. The rebuilding of the altar was only the beginning of the priority activities for the returned exiles. The reconstruction of the temple itself was the main focus. The altar was preparatory to that, essential certainly, but not the end by any means. As a consequence then, as they turned to the great priority of reconstructing the temple, the people, we read, gave money to the masons and carpenters, as well as provisions to those who lived in Tyre and Sidon outside of Canaan, in order that they might acquire all the necessary timber and skilled workmen from the region that was known in the ancient world of Phoenicia. We read of that in verses 6 and 7. Again, we see the great sovereignty of God in action here. The entire, as we might say, commercial transaction, all of the detailed agreements uh, for this project involving foreign merchants, involving expertise of those outside of Israel, was done with the approval of the king of Persia. An unlikely circumstance, we might have thought, but by now we should be used to seeing that the heart of even of the pagan king is in the Lord's hand to, complete, to accomplish the Lord's purpose. And so all here is done with the approval of the king of Persia, verse 7. Now as we come to verse 8, we see that some time has elapsed, six months to be precise. It is now the second month of a new year in the Jewish calendar, uh, what we would call April or early May. Uh, it is springtime in Jerusalem. All the wood and necessary expertise have been uh, procured and delivered, and it is time to begin the rebuilding of the temple. And so following the busy seventh month of the previous year when they observed tabernacles, after that celebration and all of the other sacred days of that month, it was always a very busy month, the seventh month in the Jewish calendar, the people uh, returned to their homes and no doubt began the work of resettlement. What would that mean? Well, remembering they were returning as exiles. For some, it would no doubt mean establishing a means of support, whether that would be, as we might think of it, establishing a business. Others would work land if that was uh, an option for them, perhaps if they possessed it or family members did. Whatever were the details of this, it would certainly involve for most of them finding somewhere permanent to stay, uh, making a home for their families now that they are back in the land of Canaan in the regions around Jerusalem. Now, as we think of the time frame here, six months is not a long time. If you have ever relocated, even with all of the great benefits of our modern day and generation, um, six months is not a long time to get yourself established somewhere, um, even where we are not necessarily building houses all the time. We might just be 
purchasing somewhere or renting somewhere or whatever those things are. But if you've ever been involved in that time, six months goes by very, very quickly. And sometimes you feel, wow, you know, we haven't even got ourselves really established here yet. Um, life still feels very fragile in terms of day-to-day -day existence. But after these six months, again, we see here the great priority for the people is not their immediate um, personal needs and material issues, but the priority again becomes spiritual things. The reconstruction of the temple is their great priority here. Again, we read it was Zerubbabel and Jeshua and their associates who led the way as leaders of the people both in spiritual uh, uh, terms as the Levitical priesthood and in civil terms as Zerubbabel uh, and in uh, their governor, um, that uh, these men and those associated with them in various administrative capacities oversaw this priority spiritual project, the building, the rebuilding, reconstruction of the temple. But that brings us in the second place to a demanding work, verses 8 and 9. This was not an easy thing to do. We note here, first of all, the significant effort that was involved here in rebuilding the temple. Notice here in the text, all who had returned from the captivity were involved, were engaged in some uh, capacity in this work of rebuilding the temple. It wasn't just a few people who could be set aside and uh, they could just get the job done easily and straightforwardly. All were involved. Of course, this speaks to a level um, of uh, genuine unity amongst the people at this time. Uh, the fact that this involved the whole community, they were willing to do so, they worked together on this, uh, signaled their unity, and it also signaled their zeal and enthusiasm for what they were doing, verse 8. We also note in the demanding work here that it required a certain amount of supervision. It wasn't just everybody did their own thing according to what they might like to do. There was detailed supervision of the work and the workmen, it was undertaken by the Levitical priests, verses 8 and 9. Again, we read some detail of this. This supervision was directed by the leading families amongst the Levites. Again, something that speaks of a fairly sophisticated degree of organization and structure. Now, again, we don't have any more details than that, and so it is probably not wise to speculate further. But again, as you see throughout the Scriptures, as God plans His purpose for His church, both under the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, um, God is a God of order here, and He establishes order um, in His church, whether it be under the Old Covenant here, in the theocracy of Israel, back in the land, back in Jerusalem, when it comes to the uh, reconstruction uh, project of the temple that there are various tasks and roles and responsibilities, and those are sovereignly appointed 
Um, you didn't appoint yourself to be a Levite. Um, you were a Levite by God's sovereign appointment of being born in that tribe. And so we see here again God's ordering of these affairs. Again, it speaks to us here of, uh, again, the working together of the people of God. Um, one commentator observes this. He says, quote, No matter how good individual contributions may be, very often overall project success from a human point of view is accomplished only as several things come together. Corporate enthusiasm for the project vision and goals, teamwork, organization, and effectively deployed individual skills, end quote. Um, if you're involved in any of those kinds of things in this world, uh, perhaps many of those phrases resonate with you. Have been responsible for a big project, um, then you know you can't do it all yourself. And even if you have all the skills, it would take an inordinate amount of time, probably more time than would be efficient to simply try and do everything yourself. It has to involve other people. And as soon as you involve other people, it's got to be organized, hasn't it? And uh, each person has to know their task and where it fits and so forth. Well, so was evident here. And so we see this even in the, the book of Ezra itself, in telling the story of redemption as the author of Ezra does. Uh, he relates how people are involved, uh, the part that God gives them to play at this point in the story of redemptive history. But whilst we see the order and structure that God has established here, we also see something else in this story at this time among the people of God. And it's something to be observed uh, as a warning and something to be observed uh, which is of sadness to see, whether it's in ancient times or whether we see a modern equivalent of it in the church today. And that is that at this time, this was a story of the people of God that began with such great enthusiasm, but ended effectively in paralysis, and the work stopped. Now, we see the seeds of that, and we'll come to that in a moment, already here. We don't see the full fruition of the fruit of that for quite some time yet. Um, completing the reconstruction of the temple took some 20 years to complete. It didn't take 20 years because of the difficulty of the task. It took 20 years because for a good number of that, those years, the people lost sight of the great vision of their priority in, once again, building the temple of God in Jerusalem and going from being motivated by the glory of God and doing what He commands to almost nothing, to paralysis of not advancing the project at all because they were focused on their own priorities. Well, and that brings us in the third place to appraised work, verses 10 through 11, appraised work. We observe also here the praise that the work elicited. 
even though the relaying of the temple's foundation was relatively small compared to the first temple, it signaled that the Lord had not forgotten His promises to His people. You remember under the old covenant, the temple was the physical symbol of the presence of God with His people. And so as the Lord brought His people back to this place, He also was assuring them that He would be with them in this place. And the rebuilding of the temple was the physical sign of that reality. And so as they sought to rebuild, to reconstruct the temple, prophecy was being fulfilled before their very eyes. This is what the prophet Jeremiah had said would happen after the exile, Jeremiah 31, 7 through 11. And so as the people sang here to the praise of God at the establishment of the foundation of the temple, they sang responsively. Um, we don't do that so much in this congregation, though it is not a bad thing to do as we sing the praise of God. Perhaps you've experienced that in some other congregations, to sing responsively, particularly in those psalms that are written that way. Um, that's what the people did here, verses 10 and 11. Uh, particularly using phrases from Psalm 100. Uh, here they sang the praise of God. As they were doing that, what were they really um, expressing? Well, they were saying in effect that God remembers His promises. His covenant is sure and reliable. Even through the long dark night of the exile of God's judgment, at a time when they might have wondered whether they would ever see the goodness of God again, whether they would ever experience the blessing of the presence of God again as they once had. Now that darkness was to be dispelled, the gloom evaporate in, as it were, the light again of God's smile and blessing in the establishing, reconstruction of the temple, the symbol of the presence of God. So, that's what this was, and that's why they praised God, because of what it represented. God had remembered His promises to them, even as God always does. God never fails in His promises, and here is another example of that in the experience of the people of God at this time. We note then that the story of the exiles return to Jerusalem is part of our story too, as we live as professing believers at this time in redemptive history. We're all in that same flow, as it were, connected together. As we think about these people, these are our family, as we think of the one family of the people of God. Without them, in God's plan and purpose, there would have been no Savior. This was the line through whom the Savior was to come. If they had not been returned to Jerusalem, if they had not been established, if they had not been maintained, then Galatians 4, 4, and 5 could not come to pass when the time had fully come. God sent forth His Son. It had to be through this line. That's what God had said. 
And so part of what is happening here, even as the people of God commit themselves to do what God commanded them to do under that particular administration of the covenant, uh, the bigger picture, God is working out His redemptive purposes. So they might be the beneficiaries of that by grace, as we too are today as professing believers. So God would fulfill not just a temporal promise to return His people at that time to a physical Jerusalem, but so that He might take all of His people in the fullness of time to the great heavenly Jerusalem above by sending forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. And so, as was dominant in their praise, so the words of Psalm 100 ought to be in our thoughts and hearts and minds. Not that we only ever sing Psalm 100, service after service after service, but, but the content of it ought to be in our hearts and minds, whatever the particular expression of it that we choose to use. Remember when we talk under the regulative principle um, that there are elements, what we are to do, singing of God's praise is one of those commanded, we must do that. There is, of course, some wisdom to be deployed in, well, which songs, which hymns do we sing? How frequently do we sing them and all of those things? That's what would come into consideration when we say we don't just sing Psalm 100 week after week after week just because we have an example of it being sung here. But certainly the truth of it ought to be in our hearts and minds. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And His faithfulness, even to our generation, sitting here in the 21st century, Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. And so the author here of Ezra is eager to show that the manner in which they worshipped showed continuity with the past themselves. One commentator puts it like this, he says, quote, in an age that too often betrays the arrogance of the modern, we were thinking about that in terms of Lewis, remember the uh, great snobbery he would say, of, uh, of modern-day times and dismissing all of history. It's that same idea. So the commentator says, quote, In an age that too often betrays the arrogance of the modern and the desire for novelty, rooting our worship in the biblically mandated past is as important as contextualizing it in the present. What's that commentator saying? Well, he's saying, look, you don't bury the worship of God under ancient practices just because they are ancient. Um, we don't use archaic words just because they are old. Now, some people may think certain old words sound cool and all of that. That's a different discussion. Um, but we don't just do old things because they are old. But on the other hand, we don't do modern things just because they're modern either. The wisdom here of what this commentator is saying is that we seek to be connected with those who have gone before us. And insofar as they have been faithful to the right worship of God, then we seek to stand in their shoes and continue that 
practice. And whatever words we may use as the current expression of language in our place and time, we certainly can express the truth of, the Lord is good. That never grows old, surely, amongst the people of God. Does it, brethren? The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to our even generation. And so we see here, as it ought to be for us, the worshipers were careful to praise God, even when the work was not yet fully completed. It was still underway, wasn't it? Still work in progress. Even when it was only the foundation of the temple was all that could be seen with the outward eye. Now, we might think that they would have had some, self, uh, some celebration of self-congratulation. Haven't we done a great job here? Look, we've got the foundation laid. Um, we should certainly stop to pat ourselves and pat each other on the back. They did no such thing, did they? It was to the Lord they sang praise. It was to the Lord they sang their songs of thanksgiving. They extolled His covenant mercy and faithfulness and goodness to them. They recognized that He, the Lord, had brought them back from Babylon. They recognized He, the Lord, had moved the heart of Cyrus to permit their return and to make all the resources available for this reconstruction to occur. It was the Lord that had stirred the hearts of the people to give and donate funds for the project. And even in their own part, whatever that may have been, in their own labors, in the demanding work, as we thought in our earlier point, of those tasks. They recognized that biblical principle consistent throughout all of Scripture that Paul tells the Philippians that, yes, we are to work. Yes, we are to do that which God commands us to do. But first and foremost, it is God working in us to will and to do of His Good pleasure, Philippians 2, 13 through 14. And they acknowledge that clearly, don't they, in their praise. They had worked, but God had worked in them and through them, enabling them, sustaining them, motivating them. And so, what and how might we summarize their great song of praise? Well, to God be the glory, wasn't it? That, that's a way we could just put it all together. To God be the glory for all of these things that He has done. Brethren, do we praise God in that way? Do we seek to bring the praise to the praise of God's glory? Or sometimes is there just a, even just a little bit where... We want some of that praise ourselves. You know, we've done a good job in God's kingdom. And surely there's a little bit of praise due to me for that. That wasn't the case here. 
and it should not be the case amongst us. To God belongs the glory. Great things He has done. Well, then it brings us in the fourth place to a discouraging work, verses 12 and 13. We see also here how what we might call nostalgia drained away the spirit of true worship for some of them at least. Among those who surveyed the work when the foundation was laid were those who remembered Solomon's temple, and as they thought about that, the current structure didn't seem very impressive at all. It was only a foundation. There was no temple to be seen at this point. And even when it was constructed, using their mind's eye, as it were, on the foundation that they could see, it was never going to be as impressive as Solomon's temple. That was obvious, even just with the foundation laid. Added to that, even when this temple was to be built, there would be no Ark of the Covenant in it. No promise of the Shekinah glory of God manifest in this temple. No contents of the Ark of the Covenant, the tablets of stone on which were written the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod which budded. And so as these older members of the community thought about these things, recalled the former temple, Solomon's temple, they began to cry aloud, the text tells us. Now, certainly a section of the people shouted aloud for joy, and they praised God for what had been accomplished. But there was another section who wept with a loud voice. They wept that the current construction would not match the beauty and the splendor of Solomon's temple, verses 12 and 13. Now, in all likelihood, the prophet Haggai that we read of, of course, in a different book of the Bible, was present that day. His entire prophecy, if you know anything about the book of Haggai, takes place during a very short period of time. It's only four months in the year 520 B.C. That would be 17 years in the future from where we are right now in Ezra chapter 3. Seventeen years in the future when the temple construction had ground to a halt. The people of Jerusalem by that time, by the time that Haggai is called to minister and to prophesy, um, the people had given themselves to lots of other things and not to the priority of the temple. They were building their own fine houses, Haggai um, says as the word from the Lord. Paneled houses is probably the phrase, if you're familiar with the book of Haggai, that always comes to mind of what the people were building for themselves rather than finishing the temple project, Haggai 1 verse 4. What does that tell us? It tells us 
that the sound of this weeping 17 years earlier, by the time of the ministry of the book of Haggai, 17 years afterwards, that which was sown on this day had gained the upper hand, it wasn't just a section now of the people, and it had brought about paralysis amongst the people in doing what God had commanded them to do. What can we say about this spirit that's demonstrated here in the book of Ezra? Well, we can observe that it is much easier to glamorize the past, to be nostalgic of what used to be, than it is to be enthusiastic and zealous and faithful in the present, particularly when it's a day of small things. And what was true in the day of Ezra, that spirit is still a great danger to the church today. What happened when we got seven years, 17 years after this in the time of Haggai? The older men were saying that the temple construction was as nothing. Haggai 2 verse 3. What a remarkable thing that all of this collective zeal, this genuine unity amongst the people of God that had begun so well, that had a section of disappointment and nostalgia kind of uh, crippling them at least. And by the time you get to the book of Haggai 17 years later, that had permeated to just about everybody so that everything stopped. One commentator observes by way of application of the principle here, he says, quote, few things are more unhelpful in the church than an older generation's belittling the efforts of a younger one, end quote. Now, that's not to say that's the only thing that was going on here. And um, we'll see much more as we go through the rest of the book of Ezra, the book of Nehemiah, um, as we've already been through the book of Haggai some years ago. But certainly this is involved here. And the spirit and the attitude that's demonstrated here was not one that God commended. Why did this spirit deserve the Lord's rebuke, which it ultimately received? Well, first of all, because it showed a disregard for what God was currently doing. There's a spirit here of ingratitude that this section were unable to count the blessings that they had. They were too busy looking backwards and thinking about things that they didn't have. The reality is in God's sovereign providence, brethren, not every day is a day of abundant provisions. Sometimes it is. And the day of Solomon was one such in the old covenant. Pretty well peace on every side. All the nations bringing tribute to Solomon. But it was not so in the day of Ezra. But the issue here is that when the Lord sees fit that there might be, as we think of them, lean times, they are still times of blessing too. Question, do we believe that? 
Do we believe that? There are times of blessing at least because they are days that provide opportunity for us to learn more about trusting in the Lord. Tell me, Christian, when have you thus far in your Christian life learned most about trusting in the Lord? Is it in times of abundant provision or is it in time of lean years? I think we know the answer, don't we? Days when God sees fit, as it were, for us not to enjoy great abundance in everything right here, right now. Help us to learn to trust Him more. And ultimately, they do, in God's blessing, make us deeply grateful to a God, even in a God who supplies all of our needs in the day of small things. So this spirit deserves rebuke because it disregards what God is currently doing. Secondly, it deserves God's rebuke because it was deeply discouraging to those who had never seen Solomon's temple. What was the effect of this um, to the younger generation of these older folks going, well, it's just not as good, and it's not as big, and it's not as great as it was in our day? It sapped ultimately the whole community of energy and enthusiasm. One commentator puts it like this. He says, quote, It cultivated the idea that no matter what they did, they would never be able to match the expectations of the older generation. Commentator goes on to say, quote, Sideline grumblers fail to be encouragers and motivators. The faith of these returning exiles may well have been small. To be sure, it would quickly wane, but far better would have been the spirit of a Barnabas, urging the younger ones in moving forward and upward, challenged to do so by the sounds of gratitude and encouragements to continue." End quote. Brethren, we need to think about this seriously. Which are we often? In days of small things when there are great challenges to the church, are we those who can encourage from the past? God has been faithful to us in the past. He will be faithful to us today. Or are we those who so quickly say, oh, well, you know what? It's not like it was in my day, and it's never going to be. No matter what is done, no whatever the attempts great things for God, you know, I'm just going to come along with my bucket of ice water and throw it all over it. It's never going to be as good as it was. Are we those who encourage? Well, there's more to this, yes, than simply saying that's all you need to do. But certainly we do need to do this, to be encouragers, the spirit of a Barnabas, son of encouragement even in days of small things. On this day in Jerusalem, and for several miles outside the city, they could hear this great noise. It was a great cacophony, wasn't it? Of, um, a great sound, some of it seemingly of joy, some of it of weeping 
and willing. It indicates here a great tension among the people of God. Some exuberance, the foundation has been laid, others weeping mournfully. It doesn't look much, and it's never going to be what it was before. The question that we're left with here, the question that hovers, as it were, in the midst of all this great sound, is which sentiment here would prevail amongst the people of God? Which one will win out? Well, the answer is a very cursory perusal of the books of Haggai and Zechariah will indicate is that it was the spirit of gloom and paralysis that won out at this time. It descended on the work and it came to a grinding halt. So, brethren, we need to examine our own hearts here. This is a very practical matter. Um, we're not engaged in building a physical temple, but we live and we fast forward to the New Testament, New Covenant era. We're not looking to a physical temple. We're looking to that great spiritual edifice of the temple that is built upon that great cornerstone, which is Christ Himself. But in our day, we need to examine our hearts to see whether there is a spirit of discouragement within us. And if there is, we need to repent of that. Far better for them in their day and for us in our day to remind ourselves of the great blessings of the gospel of Jesus Christ even if in the day of small things in the Lord's sovereign purpose of the story of redemption and history, we can remind ourselves of the great blessings of the gospel. We were thinking this morning, weren't we, of the great symbol, sign of the presence of God. It is not a physical temple in a piece of real estate in the Middle East but Christ Himself, God Himself, present with His church, even as we sat at His table, even as we communed with Him. As I sought to remind you this morning, not a mere memorial, not merely turning up to some gravestone with some truth carved upon it about who someone was and what they once did, but dining with the crucified, risen, ascended Lord Jesus. We remind ourselves of the blessings that come to us through His great work, blessings of the gospel, blessings of our union with Christ, the Spirit who makes that reality for us, that bond of the union between heaven and earth. And that we seek, therefore, to encourage our own hearts and the hearts of the brethren. So that the shout that is heard from us is not a weeping and a wailing of whatever God is doing amongst us right now doesn't look very much. And it's never going to be what I remember from the past, whatever that might be that you're thinking about. 
but rather it would be that great expression of the exuberant joy of the believer that God is good, His mercies endure forever, and that we, brethren, are the beneficiaries of that. Can we not sing exuberantly? So if, as it were, the noise is heard in this community from this congregation, what will it be? Exuberant joy for who God is and what He has done? Or will it just be that mournful, that paralyzing discouragement of weeping and wailing? It's not like it was, and we cannot see that it ever will be again. May God help us to have that spirit of exuberant joy in Himself and all that He has done and all that He will continue to do until at that last great day we are part of that assembled host in heaven where there will only be exuberant joy forever and ever. Amen. We sing our final praise this evening as we turn to 